All right. Well, I want to welcome everybody uh, here to our service this morning. It's great to see all of you here today. And uh, I'm very, very excited about what we're going to talk about today. We're in the middle of a series called uh, Present Vision. And today we're going to talk about vision for family. And if you're a guest here today, I want to welcome you. I uh, want you to feel you know, at home here. And if there's anything we can do after today to help you out, that's, that's what we're here for. Uh, but today I'm, I'm very excited because, you know, in this whole series we've been talking about, it's so important for all of us to have vision and, and to know where we're going. You know, it's like a road sign and, and, or a GPS or, or having an idea of the direction that you're going on. But, you know, what we found out, and if you look around, you're going to see so many people that don't have direction. And they're kind of feeling their way around in life. That's no way to live. And, and the great news is that there is answers and there is help. And, and, and God has those answers for each one of us. And as we've been talking about the last few weeks, vision is critical in life. you got to have it. You need it. Uh, and you need to know what, what is out there for you and what you can do to fill that vision in. And the power of vision. We've been talking about that the last couple of weeks. Is It's so powerful when you have vision. I mean, you have energy. You have a desire to wake up in the morning. You, you've got a reason to live. And there's energy. There's focus. And there's, there's joy. And here's some of the, one of the verses that we looked at last couple of weeks. And this is kind of our verse that kind of reaches over the whole series that we've been doing. And it's this from Proverbs. King Solomon said this. He said, where there is no vision, the people perish. And he was talking about from the perspective as a ruler, because he was a king. And he says, if the king doesn't have vision, what happens to the people? They, they die. There's no direction. And, and we see this all the time in, in, in our world. When a nation or a city or a family doesn't have direction, everything just gets flat. And, 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 and you, you may be alive and have a heartbeat, but th there, there's no fire, there's no desire. And the same would hold true for a nation or a family or a community, holds true for individuals. That if we don't have a vision, we die and we just exist. But we don't really live with a passion. And so we've been inviting people week after week. If this is your first time here, uh, it's great to have you. And you can go back to our website and listen to the last couple of lessons, but... What we've been talking about the last couple of weeks is encouraging people to have a vision for your life and write it down. And then to construct a plan, a specific plan on how to get there. And even to get other people involved in how to fulfill that plan. And I've heard so many great comments from people that have come and told me how much it's helped them, how much it's woke them up to see. And today we're going to talk about something that's really, really powerful. And that is, you know, vision transforms our thinking. In order to have vision, you can't look back. You've got to start thinking about from here forward. I mentioned that last week, and that helped a lot of people because, you know, sometimes we're carrying around a lot of guilt from the past, a lot of, a lot of baggage. And, and God, God sent Jesus to help us start over. Maybe not once, but maybe a few times. I know for me, I, I've needed a few restarts, reboots, if you know what I mean. And you know, vision motivates us to action. Vision describes where you will be in the future and what that future will look like. And do you have a vision for where you'll be in a few years? And what your family, what your life, 
what your marriage, that future marriage maybe, what it's going to look like. Who and how and when. And today we're going to talk about family because this is critical. You know, most of the times when the Bible talks about how God works over many, many years, there's a few exceptions, but for the most part, He's working through generational families. Meaning, what God passes down, it starts with one generation and it's passed on to the next and it's passed on to the next. Family is critical. And if you're paying attention, you'll know this. Family in our society right now is under siege. And it needs to stir us to action. It needs to be something where we say, you know what, I want to make a difference. Maybe I can't change everybody, but I can be an influence on somebody. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, and if I were to ask you today, tell me about your family. Really, just describe your family to me. More than likely, for us that live in a Western culture, you know who we would talk about? Our brothers and sisters and our parents. And that's Western culture. But if you go to other places in, in the world, outside of the Western culture, you know what, if you ask them about family, you know what they're going to tell you? They're going to go into this, this whole historical perspective of they're going to tell you about their grandparents. They're going to talk about their great-grandparents. They're going to talk about their descendants. Because one thing that people outside of our world know is that who was before me is how I came to be. And one of the problems that we have today in our, in our world is that we're too much here and now. And we're not thinking about the future, nor are we reflecting on the past from the vantage point of vision. You know, to think, hey, what I'm doing today has an impact on tomorrow. And this is a phrase that people outside of our Western world will think, you are who you are. And this is a fact, whether you're a Westerner or not, this is a fact. You are who you are because of your parents. You may hate your parents, but guess what? I got news for you. You are who you are because of your parents. And this, guess what? They are who they are because of their parents. And it goes on and on and on. And that's a fact of life. But what if we were to look at our lives and say today, hey, listen, I, I may be a parent or I may be a future parent. What if I live my life knowing this? Knowing that I could be an influence knowing that the decisions that I make today influence tomorrow. And whether we like it or not, we're in the process of shaping the next generation of families by what we say and what we do. Whether you're intentional about this or not, it's a fact. You are in the process of shaping the next generation right now. You say, there's no way, I'm just a kid. Well, we're going to see today that young people have a huge impact on their family in the future based on what you say and what you do today. And that's big. I don't want to scare you, but I just, you know, so you think about it, right? We all need to think about this today. And so today, you know, that the, the reason why I wanted to set this up is because I want to tell you about my family, mi familia. Because when I was doing this lesson, I thought about it and I went back and I said, you know, this is true. Let's go back a few generations and... and in my family. You know, and I want to tell you a story about my family because it's, it's very powerful. And it, it, it has a, such a huge fact on who I am today and even the fact that I'm doing what I'm doing. I live in this country. 
everything has hinged on a decision that was made 40-some or 50-some years ago. In 1959, my mom and dad were in Havana, Cuba, and a communist revolution basically broke out. And they had to make a choice, whether to stay in a communist regime or to leave for their future. And my father went to school with Fidel Castro in a Jesuit Catholic school, and they were in the same year, the same class, and so he knew what he was up to. He knew the type of man, he knew where this was going, so when he took power, it struck my parents. And one of the reasons why they considered leaving Cuba in 1959 was because of their children. What the communist government was doing was taking children from their parents and retraining them to think, this isn't about your family anymore. This is about the government and the revolution and the new way of living and thinking. And so their main motivation in leaving Cuba in 1959 was for us. I wasn't even born yet. And that's significant. They were leaving their family, their friends, their culture, their language, all their properties, their career, everything, to go to a place, the United States, and it's not like it is now where you go, you got, you know, gringo land and it's the, the, the land of the free and... They didn't know. There was so much that they didn't know. And it was, it, was, it was going into an uncharted part of life. But they thought about us. And so, very early in the morning, they packed up their station wagon with four kids, a few hundred dollars, and waited online to board the ferry to Key West. And for five hours, they were interrogated and searched, asked a bunch of questions before they could leave. And they had to basically lie and say, we're leaving to go on vacation, and we'll be back. Because if you told the government that you were leaving, they could arrest you or take you and not let you leave. It, it, it required a tremendous amount of courage. And one of the things that my parents share with me is that we believed that God was going to take care of us if we left. And it was that legacy of faith that initiated faith with me. So a few years later, let me show you another picture that you're going to laugh at. This is my family in Naples, Florida in 1969. I'm the smallest one, in case you're wondering. If you think about each one of these five children, that decision that they made, a very valiant and courageous decision to leave everything, start over, career, life, everything, in a country they knew nothing about, it affected these five kids. And the big question is, what if they didn't have courage and faith to make that decision. How would that have affected each one of these kids? And in particular, me. I can tell you I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing now. And I may not have even been born. It's huge. And that's what we're going to talk about today. 
Because we don't realize it. What we're doing, decisions that we do make or don't make or postpone, whatever we do, affects our future. And here's one of the realities. And we looked at this last week also. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You know, my parents, they, all they could see was a future. And they had to trust God with that decision. Okay, He's going to take care of us. This is, this is a bold move. I don't know. Can we find a job? Can we restart our lives? What about a place to live? And I remember them telling me the story where their first place they hit the ground was this little small motel. Four kids and the parents all huddled up in a one-room hotel. It was tight from what they were. And it was a huge step of faith. But I want to ask us today, what kind of decisions are we making for our kids that require courage and that require faith? And I, you know, I am eternally grateful. And not only that, I tell my kids a lot, don't forget what your grandparents did and what they went through in order to have what you have. And I never want to forget that. And I also want to reflect, and I'll share about it later, their legacy and to continue that, that legacy. The power of generational parenting and family influence on the next generation. This is huge. Do you realize if you're a parent here today that you have tremendous power on your children and, and what they do. And, and here's a crazy thought. You know, when you think about this is, when, when you think about parenting, you go, you know, one day you're going to be the, the, the old aunt or the uncle, the smelly uncle. That's going to be you one day. You're going to be the one that's drooling and you're going to be the one and, and people are going to remember you and you're going to, that's going to be you. And you say, no way. Yes, you will be a great aunt or a great uncle or grandfather or a grandmother. You'll be somebody's uncle. You'll be down that road. And you know what? Those children are going to look to you and they may take cues from you and how you live. And too often... We don't think about that, that we think, I'm just here and now, and it doesn't really matter what I decide and what I do. That shows visionless living. And today, so I want to open your eyes so that you can start living with vision, no matter what age you are. And last week, we talked about the most well-known family in the world, because it extends not only to Christianity, but to Judaism and also the, the Muslim faith. They, they, they know about Abraham. This is a very, very famous family, starting with Abraham. And the first week, two weeks ago, we looked at Abraham, and then we looked at Isaac and Jacob last week, right? And so now we're going to go a step further, and we're going to talk about Jacob's children. He had 11 children. That's a lot of kids. But the one we're going to focus in on today is his favorite child. His name is Joseph. See, he was his favorite child of his favorite wife. And as we said last week, be careful with saying, I want to have a biblical family. Because that's a mixed bag. You want to have a New Testament Christian family. Because if you go to the Old Testament, it's pretty crazy. Some of the examples there. So, yes, I want to have a New Testament Christian family. But let me tell you a little bit about Joseph. Joseph was his favorite 
was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And all his brothers knew it. In fact, he was so beloved by his father that his father gave him a special robe that he would wear around. And everybody knew who Joseph was because of the robe and because of the special treatment. He was also a snitch. He would tell on his other ten brothers and inform his father of what his other brothers were doing if they were doing something wrong, because they tend to get into trouble. And, and so Joseph was always the snitch. At this point that we're going to pick up his story, he was 17 years old. A teenager. And so... During this situation, he goes out. His father sends him out one day to go out and check on his brothers. Bring me back a report. I need to know what they're doing. And so Joseph goes out, and as he's walking to see his brothers, here's the quote from his brothers, here comes that dreamer. And there was despise for Joseph. And they hated him. Because a little earlier, he told them about his dreams. And guess what his dreams were about? That all ten of his brothers, all ten of his brothers would bow down to him. Face to the ground. Not only that, that his mother and father were going to bow down. The whole family was going to bow down to him. Hands and knees. He had this dream and he told everybody freely. So how do you think? He's the, he's the favorite spoiled child. He gets him into trouble. And then he's got these audacious dreams. Don't you just, if you're one of the other brothers, don't you just love Joseph? But they went too far. And here we're going to see. This is a modern day video that I wanted to show you guys of what happened that day as Joseph approached his brother. Brought into 20th, 21st century version. Let's watch it dim the lights and watch this video.
This is a generation of abandonment. We have been abandoned by politicians, preachers, friends, and even our own families. The divorce rate has tripled. Loneliness and depression are on the rise, and our culture has become one of increasing isolation. Joseph knew the pain of abandonment. He had everything. He was his father's favorite. He was given a code that represented God's favor on his life. He had dreamed of power and a blessed future. Now suddenly, his brothers, his own flesh and blood, had turned on him and left him alone, far from home. In that dark place, Joseph faced two paths. Down one lay hopelessness and despair, a place of disappointment and empty dreams and solitude where no one could ever be trusted again. Down the other path was something better, a God who guards and fulfills our dreams, who doesn't promise us through the journey, but tells us to walk beside us through the valleys, through the hard times. Everybody goes through seasons of abandonment, but it's how we react, how we persevere, that will determine the final outcome of our lives. Pretty intense story. That's literally what happened to Joseph on that afternoon. They considered killing him. And the brothers, you saw, that grabbed the arm of the other brother who had the knife, said, no, let's save him. Had a little mercy on him. And he was sold into slavery and sent to Egypt. So the days of being the favorite son of your favorite wife were over. And they went back and told Jacob, Jacob, your favorite son of your favorite wife is dead. And here's his robe. They poured goat blood on top of it and told this story that he had been attacked by a wild animal and was now dead. We're sorry. I'm sure he put up a good fight against the animal, but he's gone now. And here's Joseph at 17 years old with no idea of what's going to happen to his future. And he sold into slavery and sent to Egypt. As the story moves along, he is in Egypt and he is sold or bought by one of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, one of his officials in his guard unit. One of the top officials. So he had a little bit of a blessing there, so he went to a good, a good place to work high up. And the scripture tells us here in in Genesis chapter 39 in verse 2 it says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now what we know about Joseph is this, the Lord was with him but also Joseph decided as we saw in the video, he had two choices to get bitter, suicidal, depressed, or to reach out and reach up to God for help. It's a huge decision that was going to have huge implications for the generations to come. And so here he is in Potiphar's house, and this is something that describes Joseph. Joseph chose to live his life as if God were with him when it seemed like God had abandoned him. Everything that was going on in Joseph's life described abandonment. But he lived his life like God were with him. And for that reason, that faith, God blessed him. 
And it got to the point where Potiphar put him in charge of everything in his house. A 17-year-old, that he took charge of the house, everything he did, God blessed it. And so Potiphar said, you know what, I'm not going to worry about anything except what I eat and drink. You're in charge. And the Bible also tells us that Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph and that he was handsome and ruddy and she approached him on many occasions and says, Joseph, I want you to be my boy or be my guy. I want to have an affair with you on the side. And over and over again, she pursued Joseph to sleep with him and to have an affair with him. And here's what Joseph's response was. In Genesis 39, verse 8, he said, But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. I mean, here's a 17-year-old. Listen to what he's saying. He's got moral values. And in our world today, if you sleep with somebody, it's the, it's the ladder to getting high up. But Joseph says, no, that's not, that's, how could I do something? And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says here, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Many of you hearing these words from a teenager? After everything that had happened to him up to that point, and yet he takes this stand, and she didn't stop here. She kept on insisting. And so one day, Joseph approaches her, and they're in a room together. She grabs his cloak, and she says, Come to bed with me right now. And he flees, he runs, he bolts. He says, no way, and he runs out and leaves his cloak in her hand. And because she feels humiliated, she frames him and has him arrested, waits for her husband to come home and tells her husband, this Hebrew slave of yours tried to take advantage of me. And he tried to rape me, and here's his cloak. And he ran out when I screamed. Potiphar was furious and threw Joseph in the dungeon. Now this is what you get for trusting in God. This is how it works. I mean, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're a slave. It's bad to be a slave. It's not a good thing to be a slave. It's not a good thing to be in jail either, to be in the dungeon. But the worst possible scenario is that you're a slave and you're in the dungeon. Because where else are you going to go? You're not going to have a a court-appointed attorney to appeal your case because you're a slave and you're in the dungeon. He was as good as dead. But here's something amazing is that We learn about Joseph continued to live like a man who God was with, even though it seemed like God abandoned him. He kept on, in spite of everything, he kept on putting his trust in God. And then we read this. In Genesis chapter 39 and verse 21, it says, The Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. 
Now, I've got to stop a minute. If the Lord is with you, what good is it to be in the favor of the warden? I mean, really, you're in jail. The best that that can do for you is maybe a little extra bread at mealtime. I mean, it's not like, if God's with me, then why am I in jail? Why am I in this predicament? But yet again, Joseph continued to live his life as if God were with him in spite of this. And so time goes on. He's, you know, in the, he's in, the, the warden puts him in charge of the whole jail, the whole prison. He's first in command in the prison. And the warden doesn't have to worry about anything because Joseph's in charge. And so one particular day, two of Pharaoh's posse or crew are sent to jail. One of them is a baker. The other one is, anybody know? A cupbearer. And what a cupbearer is, is he would taste the wine to make sure it's not poison for Pharaoh. So he's in court. He's in Pharaoh's company in court all the time. And these two guys get sent to jail. And they both have dreams while they're in jail. And so they don't know what the dreams are all about. So they come to Joseph, and he was in charge, and, hey, we're very distressed. We've got these dreams. What do you think? And Joseph tells him, I'll interpret your dreams for you, because my God is the interpreter of dreams. And so he tells them what the meaning of their dreams. One of the guys, the dream is not good. In fact, he's gone. That's the, that's the interpretation of history. But the other guy had a good interpretation, the cupbearer. He says, very shortly, you're going to be back with Pharaoh, and you're going to be right there with him again. God's going to restore you back to where you were. And so he told us the cupbearer left and was restored. He said, now listen, when you go back, I need you to remember me. I need you to remember that I'm here because I got nobody else. I'm as good as dead. I shouldn't even be here. I was sold as a slave by my brothers. I was arrested. I did nothing to deserve it. I need you to remember me when you go and you're with Pharaoh. Can you throw me a bone when you get out? And so the cupbearer agrees, and everything happened exactly as Joseph said, except the cupbearer forgot. So he spent two more years in jail, not knowing what his future was going to be, with no hope. But then Pharaoh has two very powerful, strange dreams. And I won't go to them. I would encourage you to go and read it. This is the largest section, the largest story in the Bible. It's powerful. And so Pharaoh has these dreams, and he asks all of his magicians and wise men, what's the meaning of these dreams? What's this all about? Cows and and stalks and grains and all this stuff. He he has these wild dreams, and nobody knows. And the cupbearer's there, and he goes, oh my goodness. I'm reminded of my sin today. Pharaoh, you know, sir, if I can interrupt here a minute. Remember two years ago, and and I don't want to really bring this up, but you remember two years ago when you sent me to jail? Remember that? You know, I don't want to forget about that, but remember that? And I deserved it. I just want you to know, Pharaoh, I deserved being thrown to jail, okay? But you remember when that happened and then I came back? There was a young Hebrew man who I met in jail. When I had a dream just similar to yours, he interpreted it for me. Maybe he can help us. And so from that moment, there's a a group of Pharaoh's 
guard and company and some of his wise men, they come into the jail, they open the doors, and it's a huge deal. They get the, the rolls out and they start calling names. It says, is there a Hebrew young man here present? We need to see him. Joseph raises his hand. And they ask him, are you the one that interpreted the dreams? Pharaoh needs to speak with you. So they shower him, shave him, wash him, clean him up, maybe put a couple of earrings, a tattoo or two, and they make him look like an Egyptian. And he is escorted into Pharaoh's palace. And he walks into the palace, and then he goes into Pharaoh's court, and he's sitting in front of the most, if not one of the most powerful men on the planet, the most powerful king at that time. And he's standing before him, and Pharaoh says, I understand you interpret dreams, and I need an interpretation of my dream. And so Joseph says something crazy here. He says, I can't interpret the dream, but the God I serve interprets all dreams, and he can give you an answer. In other words, he's saying, with, with boldness, he's saying to Pharaoh, there's a God, and I know you think you're God. Now, he didn't say it, but these Egyptian pharaohs thought they, and they put themselves up as gods. And he said, there is a God who you must give an account, who knows everything, and I know him. And I can give you the interpretation because of him, of your dream. And so he tells him the dream, Pharaoh, this is what the dream means. God is telling you what's going to happen in the future. There's going to be seven years of abundant harvest. I mean, just overflowing grain, everything. There's going to be so much, you won't even know what to do with all of it. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. Really, really hard times. That's the meaning of your dreams. And before he says anything else, he, he goes ahead and he gives the most powerful man on the planet advice. Next stride, he says, now let me tell you what you need to do, Pharaoh. You need to find a man who's wise and intelligent because in those seven years, what you want to do is find somebody who can administrate your kingdom and they need to build silos throughout all your kingdom and build these huge warehouses where you can store grain because there's going to be so much. And you need to tax your people 20% of everything that they harvest because there will be plenty. And you want to fill these vats. For those seven years. And then after those seven years, it's going to all come to an end. And you want somebody really great who can administrate that and then start to sell that grain back to your people and back to the rest of the people around in the surrounding countries. And Pharaoh, let me tell you this. You are going to be exceedingly wealthy. And Pharaoh's eyes lit up. You are going to be so rich, you're not going to know what to do with yourself. And the Bible tells us, He's going to be, he's going to own everything. And people are going to come from all over to buy grain from Pharaoh. So that's what I recommend you need to do, Pharaoh. I mean, imagine this is a kid coming from jail and talking to Pharaoh like that. And so Pharaoh looks at him and says, I'm putting you in charge. Everybody in the room gasps. And they say, wait a second, we don't know him of all but 15 minutes. He just came out of the dungeon. He's not even from here, and you're going to put him in charge of everything? And Pharaoh stops him and says, can we find anyone? 
in our whole empire that's as wise as he is and that understands what he understands. And that day, Joseph is, in, is, is appointed prime minister of the most powerful nation or kingdom in the world. And he starts running things. And exactly as he says, he's, you know, he, gets, he gets all cleaned up and he, he is the man. He's, he, is, he is the governor. He's the prime minister. He's the man. He went from the dungeon, from slave imprisoned, you know, bottom of the barrel to second in command. The Bible tells us that Pharaoh didn't worry about anything. Once again, he put Joseph in complete charge of his country. And so for, for years, Joseph did what he said he'd do. He built these silos. There's so much grain. They, 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 they just pull it all together, and there's huge silos, and they, they, they fill up all these silos all over the, the nation of Egypt. And then, on the first day, January 1st of the eighth year, I don't know if they had January, but the first day of the eighth year, everything stops. There's a huge famine. Nothing grows. And after a couple of years, people start running out of grain. And they come, and here's Joseph with his table set, and he starts selling grain back to the people. And the wealth starts to just... And his power grows and grows. And Pharaoh's power grows and grows. And after two years during the famine, people outside of Egypt find out that there's grain in Egypt because there's no grain anywhere. And guess who finds out and was out of grain? And let's see. So Israel, in other words, Jacob, remember he had his name changed from last week. So Israel's sons, among those who went to buy grain, for there was a famine in the land of Canaan also. So Joseph's brothers are sent to who and to where to buy grain. Two years into the famine. Now watch. Listen, this, this is intense. This is going to get really intense. Watch. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold the grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Exactly what Joseph dreamed happened that day. And he's got them right where he wants them. It goes on in verse 7. It says, As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. And at that moment, he remembered. He remembered. He remembered the voices. He remembered being at the bottom of that well hearing them argue whether to let him live or die. He remembered the terror being taken and beaten by his own family. Everything started to play back. He remembered their laughing and their carrying on. He remembered the silver coins, the sound of the silver coins as he was being sold. Clink, clink, clink. And he remembered, he remembered as he was being carried off with shackles through the desert, abandoned by his family. 
separated from his fathers, and they're right there in front of him, bowing down. Now, this is intense. What do you do when you're the second most powerful man on the planet? And everything's come full circle. What do you do with that? And we read on. Then Joseph said to his brothers, after a couple more meetings, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he says, I'm your brother Joseph. And they looked at him, and they all threw the makeup and the headgear and all this other stuff, and they looked at him. I'm your brother Joseph, who you sold to Egypt. And he said, I may walk like an Egyptian. I may talk like an Egyptian. But I'm a Hebrew, and I'm your brother. Now, could you imagine what his brothers were feeling at this point? Oh, my. Wow. What have we done? And we read on. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And then in verse 5, and now, here's the blow away. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. What's this tell you about Joseph? Joseph is providential. What does that word mean? Providential means this. You understand this world that we live in and things that go on in this world around us? God orchestrates. He works. He's a few steps ahead of us. See, instead of getting mad at his brothers, he took a step back and looked at the big picture. He said, I just saved Egypt from disaster. Not only Egypt, I just saved God using me, I saved the surrounding countries, and I'm about to save my family from starvation. So instead of focusing on his bitterness and his anger, he focused on what and he focused on who? He focused on God. And he focused on people. Vision for your family. Joseph had vision for his family. But he also understood, I make decisions and it affects people around me. Huge. Huge. And then in verse 7 it says, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by what? A great deliverance. Who was their deliverer? Joseph. The boy that they sold into slavery. And so with this, this story that you're hearing about, and it's an incredible story, I want to encourage you, go and read about it yourself. It's intense. But I want to bring this full circle. In verse 80 it says, that, So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God did all this. And He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of the entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Look at what God has done. 
But I want to stop a minute. Let's look at what Joseph did and the decisions that he made all the way through. What would you have done in Joseph's shoes? Really? And I would say, if you made bad decisions, one of the reasons you made bad decisions is because you weren't thinking forward. You're thinking about the here and now. And that's a huge crisis that's happening in this generation, in this world today. It's too many people are thinking about the here and now, and they don't realize that their decisions that they make right now, what they do with their family, whether to get a divorce, whether to get separated, whether to get married to this person or that person, where to go to school, where to invest your life, whether to seek faith, have faith, follow God, not follow God, all those decisions going to affect the future of your family. And we don't think about that. We're here and now, people. And Joseph got it. He understood it. And here's what I want to land with. What your children and your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews, see you do, not say, see you do, will lay the groundwork for what they do in a moment of crisis. You see, in my 49 years, I've faced a few crises, and I draw strength from what my parents decided to do 50-some years ago. See, because they didn't quit. They didn't throw in the towel. They stuck with it. They said, we're going to go through the narrow gate. We're going to go through hardship. We're going to do what we have to do to save our family, to save our children. We understand. This is huge. Let me tell you another story about my dad. He shared with me a conversation in a conversation about the 20-something years of marriage. You know, when they were 20-something years. I don't remember specifically, but they'd been married 20-something years. And he shared with me, he says, Hey, I just got to share with you, marriage is hard. And me and your mom went through a really rough time not too long ago. Five kids, a career and everything. She's hard to get along with. I'm hard to get along with. I had to make some choices. Either we're going to work on this relationship and make it work, or we're going to quit and get a divorce. And my mom made sure to tell me it was reciprocal. It wasn't just him that did the thinking. She did the thinking. And together they both decided, we're going to make this work. But he shared with me about the hard time and the crisis. And not only the words, but what he did. 62 years of marriage later. I tell you, I'm so grateful that he made the right choice. See, because I'm 20-something years married now. And I'll tell you, it ain't easy. I'm hard to get along with sometimes, and I'll leave it right there. Let me tell you, I draw strength from the decisions that my parents made. And too many of you in the audience are making decisions about your life 
without thinking of the consequences that it's going to have down the road to your children and your grandchildren. This is huge. So many people are flippant about getting separated and making this decision, quitting this job, escaping this debt, not taking care of this loose end. And in the moment of moral crisis, moral temptation, you give in. Not knowing this has a lasting effect on your children and your children's children. So today, I want to encourage you to take a step back and make some choices. And I realize this. We're in a room with people that have made bad choices, and I'm one of them. You know, I may follow it some steps of my parents, but there were a lot of other steps that I made. They were bad choices. But I made one good one. And that good one was to get back on track and follow God and follow His Word. And that everything else came together. And it's not about regret. It's about from here forward. You see, Jesus wants to give us a new lease on life. He wants to help us hit the reset button. You can't change what's happened. You can only change from here forward. Your children are going to forget just about everything you say and we say. That's, that's depressing. But let me tell you, they will never forget who we are and what we are and what we did. Who we are, what we are, and what we did. They won't forget that. They're going to remember. So dads, do you realize that your children and your grandchildren what if they're going to take cues from you and what you do? What if they're watching you and they're going to they're decide whether to pay a debt or not pay a debt, whether to stand against temptation or not stand against temptation, to stay in a relationship or quit a relationship, whether to stay in their faith or abandon their faith? What if they're taking cues from you? What if your daughter's mom's are taking free cues from you and granddads and grandmothers, grand aunts, uncles, the whole list. Do you not know? Do we not know that people are watching us and they're gonna they're gonna take cues from us? We're their snap count. And like I said, that haunting thought of that you're gonna be the old guy in the room rolling around, saying delusional stuff. That's going to be you one day. And they're going to look and hear your stories and they're going to say, what can your life teach me? And if they follow your example, where will that lead them? What will that do for their lives? Will it be like Joseph who provided a blessing for his whole family and for generations to follow? That's what I want to draw you to think about today. It's so big. Because families are in trouble now. And I believe the reason why families are in trouble is because everybody's thinking about the here now. And they're saying these words, I'm not feeling it. This relationship, I'm not feeling it anymore. This faith that I'm in, 
I'm not feeling it anymore. This career that I'm in, I'm not feeling it anymore. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. Life is not, marriage is not, careers are not about whether or not you feel it. They are choices of character that you've got to be willing to weigh in and stick to it and learn and grow so that you can be better. Because people are watching. Some of you guys here in the front row, I don't want to point fingers, but hey, listen, you are making critical decisions for your future. This year, it's huge. Don't think you're just another person in the school or something like that. You've got a legacy to leave your children and your children's children. And this is a huge fact. Actions don't just merely speak louder than words. We've heard that phrase. Sometimes they echo into the next generation. You see, what you do is going to be reaching far in the future after you're gone. The decisions that you make. And so I want to leave you with these points. What decisions are you going to make today? Today. And it's not enough just to stick this in your pocket. What decisions will you make today that will echo into the future? Hey, let me tell you, no decision, no decision is a decision. The type of marriage that you decide to have is going to be passed down. The way you treat your wife, the way you treat your husband, the way you treat your daughters is going to be passed down to the next generation. My advice, God's advice, make good choices to do the right thing. And then last, parents, try to think beyond your present situation. Future parents, think beyond you and understand this has a huge impact on their future. And if you're a guest here today, I know you've heard a lot already and you're not used to hearing all this stuff, but I, I just want to say this. Take advantage of this opportunity that you have to start over. Don't waste it. Don't be a quitter. Don't be superficial. Don't be a here and now person. Be like Joseph. And have faith in the possibilities of what God can do through you. That's inspiring to live that way. And it doesn't matter what's happened in the past. It's about here forward. That's what God does. And so let's close out with, for our communion. You know, when we take communion every week, we don't realize this is something that's been passed down to us. And we do it because we received it. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new, in the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of who? Of me. See, we take the communion right now and every week because we want to remember what Jesus did for us. See, because when he died on the cross, he was thinking of you. He was thinking of your children and your children's children and our, our, our great-grandchildren. He was thinking of all of them and all of us as He poured out His blood. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is a way of saying, Jesus, 
I remember what you did for me. I remember what you what you poured out for me, and I'm grateful. And I'm asking you today to forgive me for what I did this past week and help me to get right this week so that I can live a legacy for my future. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you that we could journey into history and, and think about the future. God, I pray that today you'll forgive us for the here and now thinking in our lives the here and now decisions that we've made. I I beg you that today we can start over and start really making the hard choices. I I thank you for all the ways and all the people that you've put in my life to get me to this point. And especially, God, I thank you and we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he bore his, his body on the cross and died for us. What we deserved, he took on his shoulders. Please forgive us, God, and give us a new start and help us to follow in the steps of Jesus, of Joseph, and all the patriarchs so that we can leave a legacy of faith for the next generation. We pray so much for the future generations to come that you will work. We ask this in Jesus' name.